We're continuing our journey through Mark's gospel, and we're in chapter 15. So if you could, if you have a Bible open to Mark chapter 15, the passage, of course, is printed in your worship bulletin. Little theologians, I want you to think about a time you were at the airport. It seems strange given that this passage is about a trial of our Lord and Savior, but I want you for just a moment, think about an airport. When you leave your luggage, little theologian, where does it go? Where does it go? It rides a little belt and it goes inside a little door. What is happening to it? And I want you to think that what's happening to it is it's being somehow delivered. It's touched by several hands as they move it from one belt to another belt to another belt, delivering it slowly but surely to the plane that you're about to get on. I want you to draw for me where that luggage goes when it goes inside that little door and you can no longer see it. Our passage has the word delivered quite a few times. Listen for that passage. Well, again, we're in Mark chapter 15, and we're looking at verses uh, 1 through 15. Before we read, please pray with me. Our Father, you have made yourself known to us by your power, not by our power, by your spirit, not by our uh, intellect and understanding and piercing study. You make yourself known by your spirit. You have done so to me in the preparation of this sermon, and would you uh, do so to all of us as we uh, submit to your word, even through a weak vessel like me? Father, would you teach us by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him uh, released for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of our Lord. I wonder if it feels at all strange to you that we are looking at an Easter passage 
in the month of February. Maybe notice it, but certainly don't call it strange. It's very appropriate that we would uh, talk about the death of our Lord and Savior every time we uh, gather together. It's all the more appropriate to look at this passage on a communion Sunday. I want to argue this morning that uh, we as Christians tend to be the kind of people who pass Jesus along. We move him aside almost like that luggage. We profess the name of Jesus, but we uh, slowly pass him along, moving him out of our lives, almost as if he is the unwanted ruler. And so for this passage, the Christian is actually reminded of the submission of Jesus to the plan of God. That's what this passage does for the Christian. It reminds them of the submission of Jesus, submitting himself to the plan of God, that he might save the people of God. The people who tend to pass Jesus along are reminded. And at the table, we're reminded of that same thing, aren't we? Communion reminds us of this, that Jesus is the one who we tend to pass along, and yet he's the one who paid the price for our salvation. But communion does more than simply remind us of this. Communion in a spiritual way, as the Christian partakes, uh, the Christian is actually strengthened at this table. Why must we need to be strengthened? Because our faith is weak and we are tempted to pass him along. We are tempted to no longer submit to him or to sporadically submit to him only as we see fit. And what this table does is it reminds the Christian what great price he paid for us. Now, let me tell you what this passage, I think, is teaching us, and then uh, let me describe the, the three scenes in the passage uh, that are used to teach us this. The passage is saying to us that Jesus alone submits to the plan of God, and he alone prevails for our salvation. Jesus alone submits to the plan of God, and alone prevails for our salvation. That word plan is actually important. There's actually three plans in this passage. There's uh, the plan that opens our passage of the Sanhedrin, uh, the ruling uh, body of Jewish religious leaders. Their plan opens this passage. And then there's a plan of Pilate. We see that next. And the passage closes with the plan of the crowd. But where I'm taking you in this passage, as you'll hear clearly in the conclusion, is that what this passage is showing us uh, is the passage is showing us that Jesus alone submits to the plan of God and prevails for our salvation, and we see that in one great reversal and one great substitution. That's where we're going. One great reversal and one great substitution. But let's begin in verse 1 with the plan of the Sanhedrin. This, of course, is the uh, ruling uh, uh, body of the Jews. And there seems to be, in verse 1, a significant gathering. You see how many are involved. Uh, Not just the chief priest, chief priests in the plural, as well as elders and scribes. And they gather together and they hold a consultation. You see that word in verse 1, consultation. That's a very special meeting. And many have wondered what makes this meeting special, and uh, one possible uh, answer to that question is that this meeting is a special consultation because these, well, these men uh, needed to duct tape their plan. Their plan needed some fine-tuning. You remember their plan? Their plan uh, was uh, last night. 
And that nighttime case actually wasn't a legal gathering. And so it could be that this consultation here in the morning in verse 1 is a consultation in which they need to correct some of the errors. Perhaps uh, they now need a quorum. Perhaps now they need to alter the charge. Last night the charge was blasphemy, but they need to make sure that the charge reads treason. And so it could be that what they're doing is they're cleaning up their act. Now, I don't doubt that that is happening. But there's something more here that Mark is telling us. And I want to draw your attention again to that word, consultation. Because I think this may be Mark's way of saying that uh, this plan that is meeting together in a consultation is a plan that was begun a long time ago and that their plan worked. From very early in Jesus' ministry, the religious leaders, of course, were uh, beginning to pay attention to him. And at first, they were very private about their charges, thinking privately that he is a blasphemer. But uh, they became more vocal over time, didn't they, these religious leaders? They began to call out the charge of blasphemy. They began to uh, call out what they believed was wrong that Jesus was doing. For instance, uh, why, they asked, does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And why does he do what is not lawful but unlawful on the Sabbath? And finally, when Jesus healed a man with a withered hand, they initiate a plan. Do you remember the healing of the man with a withered hand? You might not. It was a very long time ago. In Mark chapter 3, verse 6, there's a very interesting word, but that's the scene. A long time ago, maybe as much as three years ago. And what Mark tells us there is, uh, Mark says in 3 verse 6, the Pharisees went out, again this is after he'd healed the man, went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Isn't it interesting that they uh, sought the life of Jesus so early on in the ministry of Jesus, nearly three years ago? But in Mark 3 verse 6, That word for counsel, they immediately held counsel with the Herodians, that actually is the only other time that this word for consultation shows up in Mark's gospel. And I think what's happening is this, that what Mark is doing is he's actually bookending their plan. Mark 3, verse 6 to Mark 15, verse 1. The only two occurrences of a a very unique word for uh, counsel, of course in 15 it's translated a consultation, and it may be that Mark is bookending their plan so that we might see as the reader that they believe their plan is complete. The project is done. Do you know what a punch list is? The last minute items that need to be done before a construction project is truly complete. These final items at the end of the project, I think you hear echoes of that in verse 1. Look at their punch list. They held a consultation. They bound Jesus. They led him away, and they delivered him. The project is done, and the plan worked. They fully expect to see the destruction of Jesus as the plan was stated at the very beginning in chapter 3. And notice what they have done. You see that. They've delivered him. Uh, The goal is to destroy him, but they can't do that officially. So they deliver him to the one whom they believe can, the governor of Judea. That's Pilate. And this uh, word for uh, deliverance is actually used all over chapter 14. When you look at chapter 14 and you see the word betray, that's the word for deliverance. This is their plan. To deliver him to the one who can kill him. 
Now, we're going to talk a bit more about this later, but uh, please know this, that it's Jesus who uses that very same word, deliver, more than once. Jesus has said that he would be delivered and killed. Jesus uses that very word, and here we see the religious leaders doing that. They're passing him along. The people who think about Jesus but refuse to follow him, they go through their own project of passing Jesus along. They think about Jesus, but they're certainly not going to follow him or worship him. And they push him aside. They perhaps have heard about Jesus in their childhood or in their youth. Or maybe they heard about Jesus from friends in college. Or maybe they hear about Jesus from their neighbors or from colleagues at work. But they run through a series of tests in their minds... And they ask themselves, is he real or does he exist? Does anything he say or do matter? Is he God? Should I care? Should I worship? Should I place my hope in him? And if he isn't believed, he's simply passed away, almost like a piece of luggage. He's just sent down a conveyor belt, delivered, done, and they wipe their hands. That's a powerful image, isn't it, for unbelief? That's how the Bible describes someone who refuses to follow Jesus. Well, there's another plan that begins in verse 2, and this is the plan of Pilate. Of course, he's handed directly over to Pilate. Pilate is going to do something similar. He's going to deliver Jesus as well. Pilate is the fifth governor of Judea. He's appointed by none other than the emperor at Rome, in this case, Tiberius. He has the power of the empire at his disposal. He's in Jerusalem for one reason and one reason only. It's to to monitor the locals. That's why he's there. He certainly doesn't live in Jerusalem, dry, dusty, inland town. He lives in Caesarea Maritima, the Mediterranean coast, like any sensible person. He's just there for the Passover, and he's trying to monitor the locals. And now he has this unknown Jewish man who has been delivered to him, And this man is standing right before him, but the mode of Pilate is suppression. You see what Pilate asks him. He asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Where do you suppose he heard this charge from, king of the Jews? We've not heard that charge issued to him before. Where would Pilate have heard it? Last night, Jesus affirmed that he was God's Messiah, God's appointed authority, the one who will one day return. Where did this charge of king of the Jews come from? It may have come from the Sanhedrin. Maybe they had concocted that because they knew that it would irritate Pilate. It may be that this is, well, this is exactly what Pilate cared about. I don't care about anyone unless they're threatening my kingship. Moreover, unless they're threatening the kingship of my boss. But Jesus actually admits that he's the king of the Jews, doesn't he? You've said it. He admits it. Now, last week I argued that when Jesus was tried before the Sanhedrin, that the silence of Jesus is actually quite noisy. The night before, Jesus was on trial before the high priest, and he said virtually nothing. And look what Pilate says in verse 4 of our passage. You see that. Have you no answer to make? He's silent again. Says very little. And powerful people can be rather put out by those who aren't afraid of their power. They just stand there and they're silent. We somehow have to account for verse 5. I think it's because sometimes there's noisiness and silence. Do you see how Pilate is amazed? Verse 5. 
he's absolutely astonished. There's great noise in the silence of Jesus. I wonder if a bit of it is this, that Pilate is amazed because a man is standing before him saying very little and yet confidently asserting that he's king. If you were to assert that you were king, would you at least raise a fist in the air? Would you say it with a loud voice? It might be the very last thing you say. But Jesus quietly affirms that he is the king, not only of Pilate, but the king of Tiberias. Many objections to Jesus are quite like this. We focus on that which Jesus can take away from us. And I wonder if Pilate is perhaps doing that. Pilate is focusing on what Jesus might take away from him. Maybe Pilate is proud of his kingship. And when Jesus says that he's king, that then poses the threat to Pilate. Or if Jesus says that he's the king, that poses a threat to Pilate because it's a threat to Pilate's boss. I think we do this as well. Someone may refuse to follow Jesus because of what he takes away from them. Have you uh, told uh, others about Jesus and you know that they refuse to follow Jesus because they're afraid of what will take away from them? You can see it in their eyes that they believe that Jesus will take away from me my identity. Or that Jesus will take away from me my loves, my passions, my desires. If I believe in Jesus, then I'm going to lose my family and my friends and perhaps my reputation or my status. He will take away my very hopes. He will take away my freedom. That may sound familiar to some of those who were converted as adults. But I would argue that this is not a reality just for those who uh, refuse to follow him ultimately. We actually feel this as Christians. In fact, I feel this. We moderate our love for Jesus and our obedience to him. We reserve parts of ourself from him, even as Christians, because we're worried about what Jesus might take. Might he take my identity? Parts of who we are, we uh, tend to uh, protect in a special way. I will allow Jesus this much real estate, but not this much. This is not something that's foreign to us. Pilate's concern that Jesus is going to take away kingship, power, authority, this is something that we feel as Christians. This is part of our sanctification as Christians. Opening up those parts of ourselves to the rule of Jesus. The silence of Jesus in this moment is very noisy to Pilate. And on some level, Pilate understands that this cannot be the king of Jews. You see in verse 10 that he suspects some kind of Jewish envy is behind this. And you see in verse 14 that he knows that Jesus doesn't seem to have done anything evil. But Pilate knows who he is himself. Pilate is a person who's called to protect a king, and that king's name is Tiberius. But Pilate also has his own sense of kingship, kingship over himself, it may be that Pilate feels threatened about that as well. If Jesus is indeed the king, then Jesus owns everything about Pilate, and Pilate doesn't actually rule himself. I suggest that this is experience that we feel as Christians. Well, this is the plan of Pilate, but there's another plan, a plan of the crowd. Pilate, of course, turns uh, Jesus over, in a manner of speaking, to the crowd. Now, 
We actually know very little about this practice here of releasing a prisoner during the festival. You know, Pilate is there to monitor the locals, to suppress them, and perhaps he's appeasing to them, simply giving them a little bit of what they want. And what they want, you see in verse 8, is, well, what he's done in the past six years. They want him to do what he's normally done. And we see in verse 15 that Pilate wants to satisfy them. And Pilate offers to release for them uh, the king of the Jews. He doesn't actually offer to release Barabbas, the, the chief priest you see in verse 11. They're going around the crowd. They're stirring up that crowd. To be sure, no one in the crowd knows this Barabbas to ask that he would be released. They know Jesus. This is this odd kind of evangelism of the Sanhedrin going through the crowd and saying, uh, not Pilate's plan, but our plan. Our plan's the better plan. Well, Barabbas, he seems to be brand new to the crowds, but the chief priests seem to suggest his name, and uh, we uh, simply don't know if they've even heard about him. But notice what Mark tells us about Barabbas in, in verse 7, that he's a rebel among rebels. Barabbas is not alone. He's a rebel among rebels. He's a revolutionary among a lot of other revolutionaries. And all of them have been captured. All of them are in prison. And this Barabbas, he actually stands out among those other revolutionaries. And perhaps he stands out because he's their leader. Or he's the one for whom there are most charges against. You know, these revolutionaries are a threat to Pilate. But Barabbas, we're told more by Mark, has actually committed murder. And it seems as though that charge has already been settled. In many ways, everyone should be opposed to him. The Sanhedrin should be opposed to him. Pilate should be opposed to him. And the crowds, they should be opposed to him. Everyone should be opposed to Barabbas. But you see what the crowd does, don't you? They don't want Barabbas uh, to be crucified. They want Jesus to be crucified. And Mark shares the victory of the crowd in verse 15. The crowd has actually won. And you see what Pilate does. Pilate scourges Jesus. He flogs him. You know, the reason Jesus would be flogged is is for economic reasons. Jesus is flogged so that he would die faster on the cross. So he doesn't hang too long. That's why uh, those who were uh, condemned were actually flogged. Jesus was tied to a pole. Ordinarily, women would be excused. Women are not supposed to see this. And a leather whip interwoven with bits of bone and metal would uh, lacerate the skin of Jesus, sometimes exposing bones, sometimes exposing entrails. Historical references tell us that uh, the victim's clothing would ordinarily be taken off. Why? Because the person who is doing the lashing needs secure footing. And they would lay the condemned's clothing on the ground, stand on that clothing so that they might not slip on the dirt. This is the plan of the crowds. This is what they asked for. Now, when we think about how to understand these uh, various plans, I want us to think of a great reversal and a great substitution. And I think that these two items prepare us to come to the Lord's table. Let me tell you what I mean by reversal. 
You notice, you notice that the Sanhedrin are actually supposed to be the kind of people who uphold not just justice, they uphold God's justice. The Sanhedrin are supposed to be the very people, God's very instruments to protect the dignity of life. And they're to do this as an example to the world. The, the Sanhedrin are supposed to be the ones who are advancing the moral law of God before the entire world. And the great reversal is that these Sanhedrin, rather than doing that, they deliver an innocent man to his death. And think about Pilate, this powerful governor. He's there to control the situation. That's why he's there. Monitor the locals, appease the locals, and control the situation. But the crowd actually assert their will on Pilate. Pilate wants to release Jesus, and the crowd wants Jesus to be crucified. And Pilate, who is the man who has the most power in the scene, he actually loses the argument. The crowd wins. What a great reversal that is. And then the crowds themselves. The crowds are Jews. They're supposed to obey the person whom God has put in authority over them. And that would be uh, Governor Pontius Pilate. The Jews are supposed to obey their governor. But instead they assert their will against him. And they help in the crucifixion of an innocent man. So many reversals. But do you want another great reversal? Jesus in silence the one in the scene who actually is completely devoid of of, of any evident power, Jesus, the one who says virtually nothing, he's the one who actually stays true to the announced plan of God. God's divine purpose unfolds without a hitch because of Jesus. Jesus knew that it was God's plan that he would be delivered to death. And Jesus is the one who volunteers himself according to the plan of God. That's a great reversal in this scene. We don't expect that from Jesus. He is the only one who is holy and innocent, and yet he is the one who is flogged and will be killed. He is the only one who understands that all of this is God's plan, and he's the only one who quiets himself and submits to God's plan. What a great reversal! But it's a great reversal because this passage is a picture of a great substitution. What must it be like to have been Barabbas? To be sitting in your cell with all of your comrades. And then out of the blue, no reason whatsoever, someone descends the steps and comes down and uh, opens the prison door and asks for you. And you, you uh, come out of the gates and you go up the steps and you're released, you're free. Go, you're just fine. What a fortuitous day for this man. One wonders the sense that he had in his life for the substitution. God shows his love for us in this way, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans 5.8. That's the only thing that makes this passage make sense. Here we see Jesus Christ who has suffered once for our sins, says Peter, serving as the righteous one, paying for the price for the unrighteous. Over and over again, Jesus, he is delivered along, isn't he? He's delivered along like luggage going down a conveyor belt, passed along. But ultimately, this is happening because this is God's plan. It's God who's delivering his son. It's not the Sanhedrin or Pilate or the crowds. It's God who is delivering his own son, and he's delivering his son to the cross.
Why is he doing this? Barabbas got set free. Jesus, he became the substitute for Barabbas. And all of you who profess faith in Jesus Christ, you need to understand that you have life because of a substitution and what a great substitution it was. Jesus died for you. That's a reminder to us as Christians and a a reminder to us as we come to this table. Jesus died for us. But it's also an offer for those of you who do not believe in Jesus. This message of a great substitution, someone dying for those uh, who don't deserve to have their penalty paid for, this is not a part of the gospel. It's the very kernel of the gospel. This is what's good about the good news. Your sins in Christ Jesus will never be held against you because Jesus, the righteous one, offers to die in your place to take all of God's punishment And this is not the plan of Jesus. This is the plan of God. This is how you are delivered from your sins, by Jesus being delivered to the cross. Jesus alone submits to the plan of God, and Jesus alone prevails for our salvation. Do you join me in prayer? Our Father, we do thank you for this reminder of what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. Remind us that as we come to this table, strengthen us. We praise you for the great reversal and the great substitution of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.